Tonight, we are wrapping up our year-long series that we've called Roots and Relationships. The idea behind it is really pretty simple. God is a gardener who comes to us, and he wants to grow something in us and out of us. In the place of emptiness, he wants to bring substance. Uh, In the place of wilderness, he wants to plant a garden. In the place of death, he wants to bring new life. And not just any kind of life. He wants to plant within us the good life. Life to the fullest. Life as it was meant to be lived. Life that is whole and holy, bursting with fruit. And the fruit that God wants to grow in our life is fruit that would tell the truth of who he is. Fruit that tells a story of his love and care in our lives. And fruit that confirms to all who taste it that God really is good after all. Now to get this kind of life, you need to put four things into practice. Most importantly, you need the word of God to get inside of your heart. It's essential practice number one. There's lots of ways to do that, but most obviously... Read your Bible. If you don't have one, we've got plenty on this table for you to take home uh, as a gift to you. And you don't have to binge it like you would like a show on Netflix. You only need to take in a little bit at a time. You can chew on it. You can meditate on it. You can sort of hold it in your mouth or in your life like you would like a Jolly Rancher. Just sort of slowly get the flavor out. That's essential number one. Essential practice number two we said this year is that You need to get God's word inside of you, but in order to do that, you need to make room for it. The truth is our lives are so busy. They're so full of activity, so full of noise that God's word often has very little place to go. It sort of lands on our life and it just sits there. It sort of just bounces right off because there's no room. There's no room for it to get inside. So in order to get God's word inside us, we need to slow down. We need to silence our phones at times. We need to practice Sabbath rest, like taking a day off to where we're just not doing schoolwork. Um, And just to enjoy God's goodness, his creation, just time with friends. Like we need cracks in our days, cracks in our lives, so that this word that God wants to speak to you, that is often coming at us every single day, that it would actually penetrate, it would get inside. We need God's word, we need rest, but then we need roots. Essential practice number three. Roots are a hidden support system that gives strength and stability and vitality to everything above ground. Spiritually speaking, what you and I need is what we need to learn how to pray. Having roots is learning how to pray. It is so critical that you and I learn how to connect with God in our anger and sadness, our guilt, our shame, our joy, and our thanks. It's so important that you know how to talk to him and how to listen for him, no matter what you're going through, whatever state you're in. If you don't learn how to do this, if you don't practice this, and it really does take practice, God will always seem like a far-off deity to you, someone who's just really far away, who doesn't really hear you and doesn't really have anything to say to you. And when you suffer setbacks, trials, hardship, and you are going to, like we all do, you will feel alone and untethered and disconnected. And this life that God is trying to grow inside of you is going to wither away and die. You need roots for this good life to really take shape in your life, to take root in your life, which means you need to practice prayer. That's essential practice, sort of number three. 
And finally, as much as we need to be in relationship with Jesus, we also need to be in relationship with other followers of Jesus too. We need to be in relationship with his church. The good life cannot be lived alone. You were made for community and you were saved for community. And trying to live the good life apart from like the body of Christ is like an arm trying to do stuff sort of severed from the rest of the body. This doesn't work very well. Right? There's no life in that disconnected or severed arm. You need to be connected to the church. Now, when all of these are in place, when you have the word, you've got rest, you have roots, and you have relationships, a good life is going to emerge. A good life that is full of good fruit. As Jesus explains, you make the tree good, and the fruit's going to be good. Tree's bad, the fruit's going to be bad. But you make the tree good, good fruit's going to follow. It's worth considering, though, who or what is good fruit for? It's not for the tree. It's not there to make the tree like look good. Like, what a pretty apple tree. It's, that's not what it's for. Fruit is for the sake of those around the tree. Fruit exists for those who would pass by it and could taste of it and be fed and nourished by it, be blessed by it. Right? The good life, which is contained in the fruit seed, can be passed on, it can be shared. Others get to experience it. People are going to experience the fruit of the good life when they encounter you. And they're going to experience it by the ways that you carry yourself through the world and the ways that you care for other people. This fruit is going to stand out in the ways that you relate to your identity. The ways that you relate to your work and rest. The ways that you relate to your money and your possessions. The ways that you relate to your body and your sexuality. The ways that you relate to suffering and conflict. And as we're going to discuss tonight, the ways that you make decisions and relate to your future. As I said to you, God is a gardener. And by extension, like we are kind of like a field. God wants to grow something in you and he wants to grow something out of you. But there are other sowers in this world and there are other seeds. The world is full of ideas, isn't it? And these ideas are like seeds which are sown far and wide. Many of them land on our lives, right? Some of them get down deep and take root in our heart. This is true of you. It's true of me. It's true of all of us. Jesus's insight is that what is at root is going to bear a certain kind of fruit. If the seed that takes root in your heart is a bad one, it's like it's untrue, it's false, it's going to yield a life that is out of whack. But if the seed that sort of enters into your life and takes root in your heart is true, it's going to yield something that is good and fruitful. Tonight I want to illustrate this for you, not just with my words, but with the table that will project behind me. Column one represents a field or a farm where the seeds of secularism have been sown and they've really taken root. I'll explain what that is. Next to it, column two is a demonstration plot of sorts, a field where the seed of God's word, the good news about Jesus, has been sown and it's taken root. And I want you to see as we work our way down what some of these differences may be. Okay? We live in a very secular culture. And trying to explain secularism is like trying to explain 
water to a fish. It is so much sort of the sea that we're swimming in. But let me try to put it to you this way. Secularism is a way of thinking that drains the world of magic. It's a way of thinking about the world that drains the world of magic. Secularists believe that the universe is a kind of box and nothing exists outside of the box. God and spirits and transcendence, all of that stuff exists outside of the box. And you are free to believe in those things, just like kids, like Will or JB, are free to believe in a tooth fairy. But don't bring those beliefs into grown-up conversations and spaces. Inside the box, we trust science and technology to make sense of everything. At root, right, there is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell. There is just this physical, material universe, which is going to end. Astronomers believe that in 7 to 8 billion years, it's a long time away, but in 7 to 8 billion years, the sun and our solar system is going to burn up and die. And when it does, everything on this planet will be reduced to nothing. All the love, all the poetry, all the music, all the lives lived, it will be wiped away as if it never existed at all. So, secularists will say, you're free to pretend that your life has meaning. Again, you're free to pretend in a tooth fairy. But when you come and sit at the grown-up table, let's all agree, life has no meaning, and history is heading nowhere. That is the seed that is sown in column number one. On Conan O'Brien's late-night show, comedian Louis C.K. talks about how we use cell phones to primarily numb ourselves to this awful thought and feeling. He says, and I quote, sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything, you're in your car. Suddenly it comes, this knowledge that it's all, that, that this is all that there is, that, that there's nothing and we're alone. Like that feeling starts to visit on you and with it, this tremendous sadness. And that's why we text and drive. He says, I look around, pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second. They don't want to accept the cold, harsh reality that we're alone and at the bottom of it all is a forever emptiness. And so we whip out our phones just to distract ourselves from that sinking feeling. What Louis C.K. is describing is the seed that is sown deep in soil, number one. Again, the sea that we're swimming in. And we could sum it up this way. History is going nowhere. Now, the seed of secularism stands in sharp contrast to the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who holds up the scriptures, like who would take a Bible off that table and hold it up to you and says, everything in this book is true. It's true, and it points to me. Not to me, John Minan. Jesus would say, it points to me, Jesus. Let's start at the beginning, Genesis 1. It's true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Like This is not a cosmic accident. We are living in a creation. It was made, and you were made. It's true. Genesis 2 is true. You're made of the dust of the earth, but you bear my image as well. Genesis 3 is true. Even though you're made in my image, you've rejected me. Everyone has, from Adam and Eve on, right? 
You are like sheep who've gone astray. Everyone turning to his or her own way. There is a God who made a good and beautiful world. And when folks like you broke it, Jesus says, I bought it. I paid for it. I paid for it in my blood. I've I've paid the damages with my life. Yes, life is short. But death is not a dead end because there's life beyond this box. And when you put your faith and trust in me, you get to go through that door. Jesus says, I hold the keys to it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I'm the promised one, your Messiah. I'm the snake crusher and good shepherd for lost sheep. I'm the king of creation. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And I alone have the power to make everything wrong right again. This is the good news about Jesus. And it's the good news is uh, it's the good news from Jesus. And this is the seed that is sown. Right from the good sower. This is the seed that he's trying to put deep inside of your heart and mine. And it stands in sharp contrast to the seed that is sown by our secular society. It's different on almost every point. Instead of history going nowhere, history is heading somewhere. Creation 2.0, a new heavens, a new earth, where righteousness reigns forever. As we said before in this space, what you believe about the world is going to shape how you live in it. So let's take another look at these two fields and let's see what is sort of what grows out of these seeds, what grows sort of out of that soil. If you believe that life is inherently meaningless and history is ultimately heading nowhere, how is that going to affect your daily decision making? Think about that for a second. If life is ultimately meaningless and history is heading nowhere, how is that going to affect the way that you make decisions? Well, I wasn't a Christian always. Like, I became a Christian at 26. So I know from personal experience and I know from observation that it yields primarily two kinds of fruit. Number one, it yields apathy. If nothing matters, why bother? If nothing matters, who cares? An apathetic person is often numb, and detached and flippant. They use a lot of drugs and alcohol to mask their pain and apathy. And if you feel that maybe you're numb or detached or, or flippant, or when I see those things, I've got a good guess what is at root. Maybe it's this sort of secular seed. The other fruit that grows up in the soil is anxiety. If you only live once and there is nothing beyond the grave, then there is a tremendous amount of pressure to maximize your happiness here on earth. YOLO breeds FOMO. As Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Just Do Something, I quote, when every experience and situation must be rewarding and put us on the road to complete fulfillment, then suddenly the decisions about where we live what house we buy, what dorm we're in, and whether we go with tile or laminate takes on weighty significance. There is just too much riding on every decision. Are you all familiar with Sylvia Plath's riding? Do you know her book, The Bell Jar? I didn't know it until recently. 
The protagonist in her story is a woman named Esther. Esther is an accomplished college student who has lots of great job options after graduation. But instead of being this freeing thing, all of these options paralyzes her. Esther visualizes the challenges of choosing her life path as trying to decide amongst a tree full of plump, ripe, delicious figs. Right? Each fig on this fig tree sits at the end of its own branch and it calls to her seductively, right? Pick me. Among her options are being a stay-at-home mom or an editor, an Olympic crew gold medalist, a professor. Again, all these on this, this tree with so many different options. What is she going to choose? The branches and the figs seem to go on forever, uh, a receding horizon of exciting and fulfilling options. But if she chooses one fig, she's going to say no to all of the others. But all the others are so attractive that she can't fathom saying no to any of them. And this vision that she has has a very dark ending. It ends with Esther starving to death. Because her FOMO and her lust for perfection and her lust for perfection, it prevents her from making any choices at all. So as she sits frozen by indecision, not knowing what to choose, all of the figs rot on the branch and they fall to the ground. What was supposed to be this freeing thing for Esther, right? Like having this amazing education and having all of these options after college, instead of it freeing her and liberating her, it, 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 it paralyzes her. And it becomes this terrifying, anxiety-inducing thing. And I don't just think this is a story about Esther and the bell jar. I think this is a true story for a lot of you in this room. I think this is something that, if not you, your friends are feeling. And could it be that at root, you feel this way because you believe the secular story? That you must live your best life now because there is nothing else to look forward to. This is it. And so you had better make the right choice. You had better choose the right fig. Maybe that seed of an idea is what is causing so much fear and anxiety in your life. The seed of secularism. When every experience and situation must be rewarding and put us on the road to complete complete fulfillment. Because because this is all that there is. And there's just too much riding on every decision. Now by way of contrast, what is happening in demonstration plot number two? The seed in this soil tells us that God is going to bring history to its rightful conclusion. Again, there's more than meets the eye, right? You don't, like, you don't have to live your best life now because there's something much greater yet to come, a new heavens and a new earth. In the same breath, you and I are not responsible for bringing that new sort of new heavens, new earth, or like this, new, this kingdom to earth, but we do have a part to play. Uh, our role is to live in such a way that others can get a little glimpse or a foretaste of what's coming down the pike. And granted, we're not going to do that perfectly, but we can still do it in part. Like in one breath, what we do with our lives matters, but we're not responsible for shouldering a burden that only God can bear. Like this is something that just grows out of the seed that's planted in soil number two. 
I want to try to illustrate sort of like the difference this makes from just a story from my own life. When I was a kid, I was born in Canada, but I grew up in Virginia. And when I was a kid, we used to take a road trip from D.C. to Toronto every November. Mom and dad would wake me and my sister up at like five o'clock in the morning. They would carry us into the car. They'd put us in our car seat or just sort of buckle us into our, our, our buckle us into the seat. And by the time we hit the highway, like Taya, my sister and I, we were fast asleep. Three hours later, around like eight o'clock, we would wake up near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we would eat breakfast at like the Bob Big Boys. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I'm like 81. It's there. Um, my sister and I had no idea how to get to where we're going. And frankly, we didn't need to know the way. So long as my dad knew how to get us from D.C. to Toronto, and so long as he was like a good driver, we were going to wind up at our destination. It was assured, right? We could rest in that knowledge. And quite literally, we did. We slept most of the way, like from D.C. to Toronto. But even though we were asleep for most of the road trip, it doesn't mean to suggest that nothing we did in the car mattered. Like, on the contrary, our words and actions on the way had consequences. If my sister and I were well-behaved, we all experienced the peace of that. Maybe we would get, like, a surprise ice cream or two, right? But if we were, like, being mean to each other, if we were poorly behaved, we might get a scolding, we might lose some privileges. Like, what we did in the car mattered, but if Dad was driving us to Canada, we were going to get there. I don't know if this is like too abstract, but like I think this is a helpful analogy for like sort of a biblical understanding of how like God is in control. He's taking us to the new heavens, the new earth. I don't know how we're getting there. He is getting us there as surely as my dad was getting us to Toronto. Like that's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that like nothing we do matters. Like on the way, like what we do has consequences. What we do, our choices, they do matter. Um, It's not a perfect analogy. It breaks down at points, right? But I do think it's maybe a helpful way of thinking. Like, we can make choices knowing that, like, we, we, we don't have to be apathetic. Our choices matter. But we also don't have to be wracked with anxiety. Like, we can make choices knowing, like, with hope and with trust that, like, in the end, it's going to work out okay. See, on our journey of faith, we're not just along for a ride. Like, our faith journey is more akin to a pilgrimage. Like, we're walking, not driving. And on this walk, there are crossroads. There are junctions. Do I go this way or do I go that? Do I do this or do I do that? We have decisions to make, and our choices matter. And the choices we make, they have consequences. The paths we take, they lead us some places and not others. But we are told again and again that if we are following Jesus... And if we are attuned to his voice, no matter which direction you go, if you go to UVM or UNH, right? If you go to Catholic or, uh, what is it? Uh, The one in Nashville. What is it called? Lipscomb. If you go to Catholic or Lipscomb, if you marry or you remain single, if you take this job in Colorado or you stay closer to home in Massachusetts, no matter what you decide, Like, make good choices. But listen, no matter what you decide, God is going to accomplish his good purposes for you. 
Whether you go to Catholic or Lipscomb, he's going to make you become more like Jesus. If you take that job in Colorado or you stay closer to home in M.A., he's going to make you more like Jesus. And he's going to bring the new heavens and new earth. It's not to say these things don't matter. They do, but they're not going to thwart those plans. You all following? Does this make a little bit more sense? Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is why instead of apathy and anxiety, we can make decisions big and small, right, with hope and in good faith. I'm going to say one more point about this just because I found it so helpful when it was spoken to me. One of the greatest lessons that I've learned about sort of like this idea of sort of God's will is that the will of God is not a maze with like one way in and one way out, but it's more like a field or it's more like a playground with a fence around it. I don't know if you've ever been to Pomeroy Park. It's sort of in between Loomis and North Street. Like, you got school and booth. There's a park there called Pomeroy Park. I used to take Willow there all the time. At Pomeroy Park, you've got a bunch of, like, playground equipment. Slides, swings, teeter-totters, etc. sort of fenced in. All that equipment is in bounds, sort of within the, the fence. There's a basketball court and, like, a street that is out of bounds. Now, when I would take Willow to Pomeroy Park, she would know anything in bounds is free for her to play on. Like when we would go there, she would not have to constantly be looking over her shoulder thinking like, does dad want me to be on the swings? Does dad want me to be on the teeter-totter? Does dad want me to be on the slide? No. She knows I'm taking you to the park. Anything here is free for you to play on. You don't play out of bounds, but anything in bounds is free for you. And I think our Father in Heaven relates to us similarly. He clearly says some things in our life are out of bounds. But... Within bounds, there's a lot of liberty. Some question asking helps establish what some of those parameters might be. Like, is this thing good? Is this thing loving? Is this something that helps me love God more? Is this something that helps me love other people more? Is this something that needs to be done? Is this something that I'm capable of doing? And if, as you're asking these questions, the answers that come back to you is yes, 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 yes. I think you go for it. I think at that point, you do what you like. You do what you prefer. Enjoy yourself at the park like Willa enjoys herself at the park, knowing that her father is smiling on her, knowing that your good father is smiling on you. Right? The picture I'm trying to paint for you is that out of this soil, out of this gospel soil, is a worldview where there is a lot of liberty paradoxically within bounds. And you don't have to be like slaves to apathy or anxiety. You can make decisions because your choices matter. And you can make them with hope and you can make them with trust. It is a good way to live. Anyway. Sort of point number three. Let's go back to our demonstration plot. When we put the seed in the ground, what grows out of it? If there is no God, it means there is no guide. History is heading nowhere, which means there's no north star to orient your life. There is nothing to tell you if you are on or off the right track. And consequently, nobody has the right to tell you what to do or where to go. So you can cue the mantras, you do you, speak your own truth, follow your heart, do whatever makes you feel good. Personal happiness becomes the end-all, be-all. But out of this other soil, 
we hear this insistence that there is a God and there is a guide. The world is not some random accident. It was made and it was made to work a certain way. And you too were made and made to work a certain way. And while happiness is a good thing, it's not the ultimate thing. You are made to, uh, for something greater than that. You are made for holiness. You are made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God, to make an invisible God visible. That is what it means to be human. You are made to reflect God's goodness and beauty and truth. And to say, no, the point of my life is just to be happy, is to take something really great and to make it paltry. There's nothing wrong with happiness. It's just not the thing you were made for. In all the passages that I've put before you tonight, they make this point. That you were predestined to be conformed into the image of God's Son. That you are to put to death what is sinful and put on the new you, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. That what God wants or wills or desires for you above all else is your sanctification. You're becoming more you and more Jesus at the same time. This is what God created you for, and this is what he is calling you to. Right? We're all being formed, which is to say we're all being discipled into something or someone. The question that you ought to ask yourself is, am I on track to become a person that looks a lot like Jesus, or am I on track to becoming somebody else? God's intervention in your life, right? His sowing the gospel seed and cultivating this good life in you is not aimed at simply making you happy. It is aimed at making you holy. God wants to form Jesus in you. And y'all, this takes practice. It takes training. It takes rest. It takes roots. It takes relationships. College is a time in your life when you are thinking a lot about what am I going to do with my life? Or if you're a Christian, you might be phrasing it as what does God want me to do with my life? What is his will? What is he calling me to? Now, the way this question is asked, God's will or call is often imagined as this future thing, something for us to experience or step into once we graduate from college. But that's a mistake. When we think of God's call or his will as a future thing, which is not so obvious, we completely miss the obvious things that he has called us to right here and right now. If you are a college student at UVM, God has called you to the vocation of a college student. He wants you to work hard and he wants you to study hard. He wants you to learn and to enjoy learning. But he doesn't want your studies to completely overwhelm your life. He wants you to work six days a week, and then he wants you to rest on a Sabbath. He wants you to experience Sabbath. This is what he is calling you to. There is no guessing about it. It is plain. What's more, God has put certain people in your life, roommates, sweetmates, classmates, professors, mentors, family, friends, God is calling you to love them well. He is calling you to have a faithful, friendly, salt and light presence in their lives. There is no doubt about this. He is calling you to this. In a culture that is awash in sex and drugs, God is calling you to a life of integrity, 
for you to tell the truth with your body, for you to treat it with dignity and respect, and for you to not just do this with your body, but to do this with other bodies too. There's no doubt about this. He is calling you to this. What is God's will for my life? Yes, there are lots of big decisions in life, like which job should I apply for or should I marry? And if so, whom? And for these decisions, wisdom and discernment is required. But most of the decisions we make, most of the days of our lives, God's will is obvious. We know what God is calling us to. He is calling us to Christ-likeness, to live lives of truth and love, to live lives of freedom within the bounds of his goodness and grace. We know what he wants. We know what he desires. So it's time for us to follow through, right? It's time for us to put feet to faith and to follow our good shepherd where he leads. Y'all, this is our, we're wrapping up the series. We're wrapping up a school year. Whether this is your last semester at UVM or you're coming back here for more, everything that we've talked about, about God's word getting in your life, about rest and roots and relationships, this is what God is doing and wants to do with you for the whole of your life until you meet him face to face. He is your good shepherd who's come to save and rescue lost sheep. He is a good gardener who wants to cultivate in you a good life. And he is a good father who is glad to welcome you home. I want this seed to be planted firmly uh, in your heart. I want it to take root there. I want it to grow. And I want it to bear fruit that lasts. Y'all, that is my prayer for you with eyes wide open. But let's pray again with eyes closed.